Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to your one-stop shop for horror news, true crime, and real-life tales of the unexplained. Monsters at Midnight, The Revenge. Episodes of Monsters upload on a bi-weekly format every other Tuesday. I'm your host, your favorite escaped madman, loose on the airwaves, terrorizing your eardrums, Matt Schaefer. On today's episode, we're going to be covering the polarizing indie film that's making waves, Skinamarink. I'll also give a bit of a follow-up to our last episode and give my thoughts on Deadly Premonition 2, A Blessing in Disguise. So, without further ado, lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn out the lights. Monsters at Midnight, the motherfucking revenge rides again. Um, we're going unscripted this episode. I had every intention of doing a scripted episode again. So I think last, uh, the last episode worked well. Um, evidently, because here we are, and I'm all at a loss for words. I'm very tired. I, uh, I had a job interview at, uh, 9 a.m. this morning, which, for most normal people, is not that early, but my, my days pretty much start... My work days pretty much start at 3 and can go from anywhere till like 11 and or midnight. So I'm usually awake from like noon or 1 till 3 a.m. Um, so it was a bit of an adjustment. I think the interview went well. Um, hopefully I'll have some good news in the upcoming week here. Um... If that's the case, <laughs> uh, you can expect a change in the scheduling again, um, given that uh, my entire uh, frame of work will be changing. But I will, uh, of course, keep you posted if that is the case. Hope everyone is doing well. It has been it's been a long couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, it's been a long couple of weeks. There's been a lot... Uh, going on at work, a lot of big changes at work, all for the better, or not necessarily for the better, but all very great changes, and uh, some not-so-great things in my personal life. Uh, I received some absolutely shocking and appalling news about someone I thought was a friend of mine. Um, I'm just always reminded that, uh, you know, the, nothing is forever, I guess. Hold the ones you love close. And, uh, I don't know. There's some things in this world that you just won't be prepared for. And that's okay. And it hurts, and it makes you angry, and it is confusing and scary, but at the end of the day, it's okay, because we're all in this together, so I hope you're doing well. Thank you for listening. I think that's enough about me, <laughs> and uh, we can get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, but 
I apologize. So, what this all amounts to is I'm a bit scattered and I'm very tired. And I hope that this episode doesn't become too rambly. I'm sure it will, but if you've been listening to the podcast thus far, I guess that hasn't turned you off. Um, because, uh, yeah, not scripted this episode. Like I said, I wanted to because uh, I like I liked the format. I think it worked well, but I'm also just comfortable in the idea of doing a scripted episode here and there, doing something off the cuff here and there, uh, just whatever works given the moment or the subject material. I'm going to start off by uh, talking about Deadly Premonition 2, A Blessing in Disguise. If you uh, tuned into the last episode, you got my thoughts on uh, the first Deadly Premonition video game. Um, weird video game with uh, just unabashed reverence for Twin Peaks. Uh, that is a strange game in that it has a wonderful story isn't remarkably fun to play, and also is just technically fucking broken. <laughs> so, the idea of it ever getting a sequel is kind of a bizarre concept. I didn't even realize it got a sequel until fairly recently, and Deadly Premonition 2 already came out in 2019, so we're already looking at, like, four years old at this point. Deadly Premonition 2 is somehow both a better and worse game <laughs> than its predecessor. Granted, I conceded in the last episode that a big part of my love for Deadly Premonition 2 definitely came down to the fact that it is so just blatantly inspired by Twin Peaks. This one has a lot less outwardly to do with Twin Peaks, which is cool. So... It has a lot of weird quirks and uh, ideas that are wholly their own. I mean, that I know of. I haven't read of anything that this game is overtly plagiarizing, like was the case with the first game. Uh, it is... I say that this game is both better and worse than the predecessor in the fact that it still has a really strong story. The story serves as both a sequel and a prequel to the original. You once again take control of FBI Special Agent Francis York Morgan as he investigates a series of bizarre and brutal murders in the fictitious town outside of New Orleans known as Lacare. Bookending this investigation are sequences that take place in the present day as York's true personality, Francis Zack Morgan, which is a spoiler. It's fucking terrible with these <laughs> spoiler tags. Uh, is being interrogated by the FBI as they believe he has a deeper, more sinister connection to the Lacare case. Um, a lot of the things that worked so well about the story of Deadly Premonition 1 are back and then some. There is a colorful and eccentric cast of side characters. Um, and... They're all performed really, really well. The voice acting in the first game is good. It's serviceable. Um, a lot of it is really just to heighten the sort of like oddities the game presents. The, the voice acting in this game is legit really, really good. Uh, holding it all together is the actor Jeff Kramer, who plays York. Uh, he, he feels much more comfortable in this role 
role now, and he is just having an absolute blast with the material. Um, the story itself... Story itself works in different capacities, at some points more than others. Um, the investigation stuff is, again, really memorable and really interesting and really dark and twisted. Um, ultimately, it's about this uh, story of the, the Clarkson family who sort of have, like, have had this unofficial, like, part ownership of the city of Lacare for, like, hundreds of years. They're, like, the oldest family in the city. Um, almost like this, uh, s sort of, like, modern-day royalty aspect to them. And, uh, the story goes through, uh, all the mysteries that, uh, their family, uh, is sort of wrapped up in that mainly come to a head when uh, the youngest member, the granddaughter of the patriarch figure, is uh, found murdered, and then eventually so is her mother. Um, again, just really well-written well mystery that shows that Sweary and company have a deep reverence for film storytelling and television storytelling um there's this great scene in uh the local bar the owl's nest where Ror uh rourke jesus christ i really should have scripted this where york is interrogating a suspect and they have this sort of like almost overtly tongue-in-cheek film noir style back and forth where they're just like really like <laughs> like posturing with each other it's it's really fun uh for the majority of the game you also have a plucky like 10 year old side sidekick named patty uh she is absolutely delightful um th the right sort of balance of like bratty kid that i think works really well with how, like, childlike York's wonder is to everything that's happening. She's almost like the jaded, cynical uh, veteran cop in, like, a buddy cop story, but she's a 10-year-old girl. And their their dynamics are really funny. Um, a lot of the little quirks, again, of, like, talking to Zack when you're uh, going around town are back, and... Are, are just absolutely delightful. Um, there's something really vindicating uh, to me as, like, a fan of weird movies when I actually know, like, the movies that York is discussing. There's a great bit that you can uh, find and talk about with Zach where he talks about the works of Charles Bronson, and he's listing, like, all these movies, like Death Wish and uh, others, where he's like, but, you know, I still don't think those are Charles Bronson's best work and i'm like is it 10 to midnight and york says do you know what i'm talking about of course zach that's why we get along so well and i'm like thinking is it 10 to midnight and york goes that's right 10 to midnight and i'm like fuck yeah it's 10 to midnight it's, a, it's a little moments like that where i just felt all the more engaged of course that's a pr pretty personal reason to feel engaged uh if you have no idea what York is talking about, it'd be completely understandable. 
There's also this, like, running joke in the game where York hasn't really seen any big blockbusters, which is funny, or at least doesn't care for big blockbusters as much as he does, like, weird little culty movies. Like, there's a part where, um... They're talking about James Cameron. Him and Patricia are talking about James Cameron. And she mentions that he directed Titanic... And York hasn't even heard of Titanic. He thinks that she's talking about the movie Rise the Titanic. And he's like, but James Cameron didn't direct that movie. <laughs> um, and like I said, all the side characters are just really delectable. A lot more grounded and a lot more believable as human beings than most of the characters in Deadly Premonition were. But this also isn't obsessed with replicating Twin Peaks. So a lot of the characters have a lot of like great personalities and moments and moments of depth um what else do i like about this game i think this game is objectively a much prettier looking game too um i don't think the original game looks bad by any means but it's definitely like kind of ugly looking you can tell it was a budget title i really like the art style in this game it's almost like cell shaded um it gives a lot of personality to everything it almost read looks like you're reading this weird uh detective comic book this supernatural detective comic book um because it was ported from the switch there are some issues with like bad draw dish distance and uh really really bad pop in but this kind of comes with the territory of being a switch port Another issue that I think comes from being a Switch port is, like, for most of the side missions, there isn't actual voice acting, it's just text. And I want to say that has probably had to do with limitations for, like, space on the Switch, although I can't be sure. The side missions in general are their own can of worms that we'll kind of get into in a minute here. But I want to talk about what I do like about this game. Uh, one of the biggest things I like about this game is the soundtrack. Um, the soundtrack is a lot more cohesive and well-implemented than it is in the first game. And also just really, really well done. It's uh, composed by Satoshi Okubo. I'm not entirely sure if that's how you would pronounce it. Um, I know very little about Japanese. Um, but... His work is very important to me because he did the soundtracks for two of my favorite video games, the uh, Kyle Hyde video games that were on the Nintendo DS, Hotel Dusk and Last Window. And so when I saw his name in the credits, I was like, oh, hell yeah, the soundtrack's going to be great. And it was. Um, a great balance of like jazz and uh, more experimental pieces, but also because the game takes place in the South, there's a lot of like interesting like blues and like uh more country inspired tag uh tracks as well soundtrack is definitely worth listening to uh it has like this really the game has this really like almost james bond inspired uh opening uh credit sequence with this uh wonderful opening track called the deep south that is just breathtaking and honestly one of the best parts of the game So, I I ultimately enjoyed this game. Uh, where this game falls apart for me is this game is just padded to shit. Like, in, my, in the last episode, I talked about how the uh, side objectives 
there wasn't really a huge incentive to doing them other than for like a handful of weird moments and things like that. There are absolute there is absolutely no reason to do the borderline no reason to do the side missions in this game. They are just like the worst type of side missions I've seen in a video game. They're almost always a fetch quest. They oftentimes involve a long period of waiting, uh, especially since, again, the game features the, like, in-world in clock. So some side missions you just you literally can't finish until a certain amount of time has passed. There's, like, fetch quests where you need to just bounce back and forth all around the fucking map. And ultimately the rewards for these things for these things are just not worth it. They're rarely money, which isn't the end of the world because nothing is nearly as expensive in this game. But then again, like the the economy in the first game was thrown all out of whack. You had to make like an absorbent amount of money doing everything because everything was like so expensive. Um, so it's the reward is very rarely monetary. It's always like. The little, like, crafting items that you can also just find throughout the map as well. Uh, because there's this focus on creating, like, voodoo charms that will boost certain abilities. Which is a cool concept, but, like, very rarely do you get something of actual merit from doing the side missions. There is really no impact on the story at all from doing them. So, that sucks. You don't get to hear any of the good voice acting, because so many of them don't have voice acting. And so many of them are just an absolute pain in the ass. They feel like chores. That it, The majority of them are just not worth doing. Um, that's, and I mentioned the little, like, crafting materials. Finding them suck. <laughs> like, the... They're represented by these, like, little, like, glowing specks on the map. They're, like, puny that you need to, like, use your sixth detective sense to even, like, find them and mark them on the map. There's just, there's a lot of weird ideas in this game. Much like the first game, but they just, they even more feel like a hindrance to enjoying the game than they did in the first game. Um... I just, it's really no other way I can describe it other than this game feels like it's just padded because the story itself is not super involved. There's some really great highlights, but by the end of it, it kind of goes on weird tangents and kind of falls apart, but then gets back up again. It's The ending of the story is weird. Um, so I think they just were looking for a way to make sure that you felt like you got your money's worth, which this game is still selling for $40. If you're interested, I would recommend waiting for it to go, like, way on sale. Still, not a bad game. In, um, the best aspect of it was that I didn't need to worry about it crashing, <laughs> like, every 30 minutes. There are still some weird technical issues and bugs, but nothing as egregious as the first game by, like, a landslide, mercifully. Um, but ultimately, I just... 
I don't find the game as remarkable. It has a good story, but one that isn't nearly as interesting or woven or, like, deeply layered as the first game was. And that's not even just banking on the factor that the first game is basically Twin Peaks, a video game. The story in the second game just is is good, but just not as engaging as the first. Um, the side missions suck, and nine times out of 100 are worth doing. Uh, the majority of them are not. Um, the whole experience of going around the map just isn't nearly as fun. I forgot to mention that, like, your initial mode of transportation is on a skateboard. Again, I feel like that must have been a hardware-ish uh, limitation workaround. Eventually, you do unlock a fast travel system, but you better get used to using that skateboard. <laughs> um... There's always a lot of clever ideas that I feel like Swery comes up with, but just doesn't can't execute it to its fullest potential in some sort of capacity. And so, in a way, Deadly Premonition 2 is more of the same, but also a step backwards and a step forward in some regards. It is a weird little game for weird little people that I am happy I played. Um... But honestly, as infuriating as it was to get through the first Deadly Premonition, I feel like I am much more likely to revisit the first Deadly Premonition. Um, so, that's my thoughts on Deadly Premonition 2, A Blessing in Disguise. If you've played either of these video games and wanted to uh, let me know your thoughts about them, I would love to hear them. Please shoot me a email at monsters.midnight spelt incorrectly at gmail.com or slide us a DM slide us a DM what, what the fuck am I talking about you know what to do, Facebook, Instagram all the fucking shit <laughs> I'm really good at this whole promotion thing okay but the main, uh, the big thing that I want to discuss on this episode is of course Skinamarink Skinamarink is a uh, super low-budget, independent horror film that has been making waves pretty much since the festival season back in December. The film is directed by Kyle Edward Ball. Kyle Edward Ball really got his start, from what I understand, as a YouTuber, and did a short film called Heck, which was sort of a proof-of-concept for Skinamarink. When he was on YouTube, he was essentially doing, like, making short films inspired by the nightmares that his viewers were having. And much to that extent, uh, Skinamarink is based on nightmares of his own that he had as a child. But I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. This movie made a lot of waves at the end of the winter because... From what I understand, when it was doing the festival circuit, someone lost, like, the physical drive that the film was sent on. So someone had to literally, like, send them a torrent link or something. So the movie leaked, like, really, really early. But it really then was getting a huge amount of popularity on Twitter and TikTok with a lot of people, like, really championing this movie. My good friend Jake, who was on the podcast a handful of episodes ago, 
he saw it and absolutely adored it. He's been really hyping this movie up. The film got a very limited theatrical release and is now available on Shudder, which is where I watched it. It was around this time that I more and more reviews started co coming up, and uh, it was really when you saw how polarizing the reviews were for this movie. This movie, in most people's minds, are either one of the best, m most well-executed, scariest films ever made, or it is a boring, unwatchable mess. <laughs> so I was when I watched this movie, I was trying to moderate my expectations. Um, I kind of, from reviews, got the gist of what the, this type of movie would be. I went to film school. I am well familiar with experimental, slow-moving films. It's not always necessarily a turn-off for me, so I was open to giving this movie a chance. The plot of the film concerns two children who wake up in the middle of the night to find that their parents are missing and other things in their house, such as doors and windows, begin disappearing as well. And that's plot, quote-unquote, for this movie. There is m m potentially more, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, this movie is definitely interesting, and I am very happy that movies like this exist and are getting publicity. I think it is super cool that a movie this obtuse and borderline esoteric is getting, like, wide recognition on the internet. I think it's really cool, especially... I, I love the the underdog story, especially in filmmaking. I love... The budget for this movie was, like, 15000 which, to be fair, seems like this movie could have feasibly cost a lot less, but what do I... It was probably for the actors, primarily. Um... And managed to get a, at least a limited theatrical release. It did festivals, and it's it been picked up by Shudder. I'm very happy for Kyle Edward Wall. I hope he continues to do things, and I, I will give them a shot. The biggest thing with Skinnamarink is, functionally, I don't think this movie works as a feature-length film. This movie is 100 minutes. An hour and 40 minutes. I... I'm not one of those people that felt the runtime. I've read some reviews where people just really were really bored to tears or were really frustrated by how long this movie takes. It is an undeniably long and slow sit, but I will echo the sentiment I've heard numerous times now that this would be a really good short film. If this movie was 30 maybe 40 minutes long. This movie would be absolutely intense and weird and frightening. And the thing with Skinnamarink is, is it is, I, it's not scary. I mean, at least to me, scary is... Uh, being scared is obviously a very subjective emotion. Other things are going to work for other people more than they do for others. Um, I, When watching this movie, I was on edge. 
I was uncomfortable. I was creeped out, I will say. There were definitely moments where I had to watch through my fingers. I'm not too proud. Or I'm not too, uh, too proud to, it, I'm not, that's no. I'm proud to admit that. I'm not too whatever to admit that. <laughs> I, I fucking, I, I'm telling you, dude. It's brain not working. Um, but, what the fuck was I saying? Jesus Christ. I got so hung up on how I was trying to say it that I just completely forgot what I was saying. Should have done scripted. Oh well, that's fine. Hopefully you're still listening. Hopefully you're having a great time. Oh, I was talking about the emotions. This movie, I is to me, isn't exactly what I would call scary, though, because just given the like format and obvious inspirations for this movie, I was on edge waiting for the jump scares to come because I know they're going to come. I don't like jump scares. I don't think anyone does. I don't think there's anyone anything fun about some asshole just nah! and fucking. There's nothing fun about that. Like, it, and that's why, like, there's been this, like, constant debate of, like, is, and it has been even outside of this movie of, like, what is scary and what is startling. Um, I think this movie succeeds phenomenally in creating an atmosphere, so it blurs the line between being scary and ultimately being just startling. But the thing is, because the movie is so long, and you really are, for the majority of the movie, just sitting in this moody, uncomfortable state, there's really not a lot of jump scares in this film. They're memorable when they, they happen, and I don't think they're cheap when they happen either. I think they're warranted. Um, some people are like... Uh, lazy filmmaking, cheap jump scares. I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, but because the movie is so long and is essentially like a 100-minute-long cursed YouTube video, at the end of it, I was like, was feeling uncomfortable for the duration of that film ultimately worth it? And I'm not sure if I have the answer to that which I'm fine with. It's hard for me to adequately express how I feel about Skinamarink because it is so weird and it is trying something, at least for feature films, pretty different. Um, and I say for feature films because this movie is, like, I can confidently say one of the few movies that is, like, truly and unabashedly born by the internet. There have been horror movies like Unfriended and Countdown that are, quote, born by the internet, but because of a gimmick, because of a cash grab. That's not the case with this movie. This movie is very reverent to the analog horror subgenre for internet content, creepypastas, liminal spaces. This movie is... Uh, you could say this person is online that made this movie. Um... Where this movie kind of drops the ball is because, like, the movie is this basically sustained endurance to get to the next Bugatia moment. Um, you really lose something in experiencing it because it's not like a five-minute short on YouTube. If you watch, if you watch something 
like, say from the Mandela catalog, a popular YouTube analog horror series. Most videos are pretty short. You get what you come for pretty quickly, and then it's over. And then you can, like, ruminate on how you feel about it all beyond that. This movie wants to do that on a grander scale, and I just don't think it works. It might not even be possible to do something like that as a feature-length film. That's not to say that they're like this movie is worthless. There's a lot of merit to this movie. Um, it you it has a great sense of direction. It is, well, I mean at least in shot composition, it is routinely trying to get you in the headspace of a child being alone in the dark. Most of the camera angles obscure are obscuring whatever like the main subject of the shot should be. There's a lot of low angles, a lot of really weird high angles, a lot of just imposing, threatening camera work in this movie. And that's coupled with the fact this movie uses darkness really well. The shadows are really evocative, really suppressing, uh, really claustrophobic feeling to this movie. This is a double-edged sword, though, because it can lead to... I saw a review on Letterboxd that was like, you really need to watch this movie by yourself, and you kind of do, because if you're watching it with friends, you're constantly going to be like, what is that? Do you see something? I see something. What is that? And that's going to it just inherently take you out of this movie. You really... If you were going to watch this movie, it is. Be I feel like it is going to be best suited as a singular experience with little distractions, probably in the dark. If you feel like watching, if this sounds like something you would be interested in. So I love the look of this movie. But again, kind of drops the ball in the regard. I think that's ultimately how I feel about this movie. Like the idea, don't like the execution. Um... The whole the movie takes place in 1995, and the whole movie has this really really lo-fi filter and look to it. And you're probably thinking, oh, like VHS? It's not like VHS. This movie almost looks like it's got like an eight millimeter, like Super Eight or a sixteen millimeter film grain effect on it, and. The opening and end credits, the font and the like choices to have the copyright in uh, Roman numerals, everything about this movie, it is trying to ev evoke the 70s. And it's one of my biggest pet peeves in media when they try to do this sort of throwback look to the film just to do it. And it's not really in service to anything or even makes sense to, like, when the movie should be taking place. That was sort of my biggest, one of my biggest pet peeves with Psycho Goreman, too, which is a completely different movie. But it's just like, if the movie takes place in the 90s, why are you trying to make it look like it's the 70s? I've read some interviews with Kyle Edward Ball where he just, he seems to just think that old media just gets creepier as t the more time passes, which is not a super interesting take. 
or understanding of why things are creepy to begin with, but it's very apparent that he just, he finds old media creepy and decided that that's what the movie is going to look like. And also, because the thing is, like, the kids are, throughout the majority of the movie, watching these really old, like, 20s or 30s public domain cartoons. So you get a lot of, like, warbly jazz music and, like, weird voices and stuff like that. Sound design in this movie is really good, except for the part parts where it, again, tries too hard, becomes too intense with what it's trying to do. It's something that's very evocative of what analog horror does, where voices are so distorted that there is a use of subtitles, which I'm fine with. It's a stylistic choice, but there are some. T but then there are some times where they just don't use subtitles, and it's like, well, I'm just going to assume what they're saying isn't important because they didn't decide to subtitle this. Um, this movie, this movie just scatters my brain because, like, I can really see where the headspace was, but I just don't think this works in a lot of regards and a lot of that also comes down to the story i i mentioned that there is like a story but a lot of it a lot of it is going to be up to interpretation and analysis there are plenty of internet rabbit holes you can already go down to like discuss and analyze what skin and is actually about again the thing that annoys me is it has one foot in it has one foot in two different lanes. It has one foot in being a completely nightmarish, purely evocative experience of what it's like to be a child at home alone in the dark. But the other foot in sprinkling little clues, whether it be dialogue or imagery, of what could actually be going on. And that's why I just wish this movie would pick a fucking lane, because it's like... Don't. It's hard to do an experiment, an experimental film. It is hard to experiment with the media of film, especially for something like this, where the majority of the movie is just sort of a composition of different shots of hallways and stairways and doorways and the living room, and it just goes on and on like that for a hundred minutes. It's hard to do that without wanting to at least have an inkling of a deeper story. So I'll play ball. Spoiler alert for Skinamarink. This is what I think this movie is about. I think the movie is about child abuse, personally. I think that there's a couple different theories I saw online, and I think they're both true in some sort of capacity. I think that because there's the two kids Kaylee and Kevin I think that Kevin is being abused by his father there's a line at the beginning of the movie where you hear the father on the phone saying that Kevin took a fall down the stairs it wasn't that bad though he didn't even need stitches Kaylee says that he was sleepwalking now this doesn't really mean anything until the very end of the movie where a title card that says 572 days pops up 572 days later 
572 days earlier. We don't know. It's an almost weird, innocuous detail to have because time hasn't really mattered at all until this point. So there's a lot of theories that Kevin is in a coma, that this is a recurring nightmare, that the longer he stays in this coma, the more things become unfamiliar. That's why things in the house are disappearing. That's why faces are often obscured with their, like, eyes and mouths out. Now, the reason why I do think that child's, child abuse has something to do with the story is because there are a lot of moments where you hear muffled shouting behind walls, behind doors, there is this ominous voice that speaks to Kevin and Kaylee throughout the dark. At one point, the voice says that Kaylee... I believe that the voice says that Kaylee didn't listen to him, so he took her mouth away. And that's one of the jump scares in the film, is Kevin finds Kaylee downstairs, and there's an intense close-up of her face with her eyes and mouth, almost like... Uh, blurred out it's an effective shot um but again like one of a few moments that like overtly goes for jump scares i think that that aspect ties back to the beginning where the dad is telling people that kevin fell down the stairs kaylee says he was sleepwalking and that, like, plays into, I took her mouth away. He's just, like, lying. He's making up the narrative. A lot of this also comes down to the way that the mom is portrayed in this movie. The mom is portrayed very morose. Very, very, like, her back is, when you do see the mom a couple times, her back is always to the camera. There's a scene where Kaylee finds her in the bedroom, and there's a moment where he, she tells Kaylee to close her eyes because she doesn't want her to see this. And I think this has to do... I just think this is another layer to some sort of violence happening in this house. It's possible that the husband is also abusive to the wife as well. To me, it almost seems fairly obvious that if there was a narrative, this would be what it's about. Because, again, the movie sprinkles just enough for you to figure this out. But in the fact that these are the only things you can latch on to, I'm like, okay, if the movie does mean something, I'm fairly certain this is what it means. That's my take on it, at least. I'd be curious to hear anyone else's interpretations of the story. Uh, again... Hit me up. <laughs> I'm not going to do what I did earlier. Hit me up if uh, you have seen Skinamarink and have thought your own thoughts on what the movie is about. At the end of the day, I think Skinamarink is a very interesting film, and uh, but it's more of an interesting film to discuss and what it means for horror filmmaking in general than it is an actual uh, actual movie, if that makes sense. I think this movie swings for the fences and being a feature length, like I said, cursed YouTube video, but drops the ball too many times in different ways along the way. It isn't smart enough to balance its inspirations with doing a story or uh, an experiment in a long form media. 
However, I also do not think that this movie is either one of the scariest movies ever made or a boring dredge that this movie, that the reviews I've seen are making this movie out to be. This movie is okay. This movie is fine. It is a spooky little film that I think is worth checking out in some sort of capacity, but you really got to be in the right mindset, in the right environment. You need to... Uh, you really need to devote your attention to this movie. If this movie sounds interesting to you, it's on Shudder. I would w recommend checking it out. I am a big supporter of independent filmmakers, and I think that this underdog story of this movie is really cool, um, but ultimately results in a movie that... Uh, it's fine. It's not necessarily my thing and also just has too many weird things working against it for me to give a blanket recommendation to it i gave it a three out of five on letterbox i would love to hear your opinions on what you thought of skinamarink and that concludes today's episode i hope you enjoyed it um, if you have, like I mentioned, if you have any thoughts on the Deadly Premonition video games or Skinamarink, I would love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at monsters.midnight, spelt incorrectly, at gmail.com, or shoot us a DM through Facebook and Instagram. You can follow me on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash mattflamingo. I try to write about everything I watch, so if you want my takes on non-horror films, you can head over there. Until next time, my tender lumplings, stay scary.